they're uh, finding their seats, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, and we are going to be looking at verses 7 through 17 today, not quite finishing yet, (laughs) we'll have one more week and then we'll be done with this book of Hebrews, but it's been a great journey, hasn't it? Um, There's so much, so much in this book. So much that we've learned, so much that uh, God has graced us with, um, and there's more today. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 17. It says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Thus ends our reading of God's authoritative word. May all who hear it submit to the authority of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think one of the toughest things, yet one of the most vital things that a Christian should be doing when they're facing hardship is submitting to the authorities that God has placed in their lives. And the reason this can be tough is because often these authorities are going to instruct you to make difficult choices. Choices that that won't necessarily make your life any easier. For often the advice that they will give will have eternity in mind and not, not your best life now. And yet submitting to such instruction is vital. Because when, when, when a person decides not to obey these authorities, they begin those first steps down that path that lead to eternal destruction. This is what Jesus said to us on his Sermon on the Mount, is it not? Look at, look at Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14. Jesus said this, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. 
I truly believe that there are many, many people out there today who, who believe in their hearts that they are following Jesus, who believe that they are Christians, and yet they're really not. They, they, they like the idea of Jesus as their Savior, but they then reject Him when He takes upon the title of Lord. And this is because they refuse to submit to His authority. They refuse to obey His teachings or, or to believe some of the harder truths that come from His Word. And one of the biggest reasons that they refuse His authority is because they want to have their life to be easy now. They, they don't want that narrow gate nor that difficult path. And so they choose the easier route, foolishly believing that, that they are already saved. And it is this desire for this easier road that has become prevalent within our society today. For, for we have seen this growing aversion to all authorities, have we not? I mean, this is why we have riots in some of our major cities. It's, it's why the homes and the lives of Supreme Court justices are, are now threatened. It's why elections are, are challenged when the other side wins, right? Because we want things our own way. We want to be these autonomous beings, people who decide our own fates. And in order to do that, we, we need to reject authority. We'll have no authority but ourselves. And this is why this scripture for us today can be so, so challenging. For, for what we find in these words is, is, is a challenge, right? It's a challenge to lay aside our own autonomy, a challenge to lay aside our own authority and to submit to the authorities that God has placed over us. And our author, he will cover three authorities to whom we are to submit. In verse 7, he, he speaks of these founding leaders who, who brought the message of the gospel for the first time. And then in verse 8 through 16, he speaks of Jesus Christ and the gospel message that is in agreement with both who he is and, and what he has done through his saving works. And finally, in verse 17, we see the authority of the leaders whom God has currently placed to preach the gospel and to oversee his church. And what I, what I want you to notice when we look at these three authorities is that, is that they are all in agreement with the gospel. And so in a sense, what our author is asking of us is that we submit ourselves to the authority of his gospel, to this good news of Jesus Christ. So let's take a look. Look at this first of the look at the first of these three authorities. Look at verse 7. It says this Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now I don't know if you notice the tense that's used in this first verse, but our author is speaking of the past. It's almost something that you would say at a funeral, is it not? And that's because he's referring to those leaders who have already completed their walk with Christ. Remember your leaders, 
those who spoke to you the word of God. I mean, why use this word remember? Why not use a word like honor or respect? Because implied in this, in this wording is that these leaders are no longer with them. Now, who were these men? Who, who were these leaders that they were supposed to remember? Well, one of the disadvantages of reading a letter that was written nearly 2,000 years ago and that was addressed to a totally different church is that we don't always get to know the context of that letter. And so we know very little about these men whom our author is referring to. All we know is that they spoke to this church the word of God. Odds are they, are, they were the very ones who brought the gospel to this church in the first place. Most likely they were the founders of this church. Men of God who were no longer with them. Perhaps they were martyrs of the faith. Men who died for the sake of Jesus Christ. Or it could be that they, they passed away because of some type of sickness or, or just merely old age. Whatever the case, what is, what is indicated in this wording is that these men were faithful servants of Jesus Christ. And that these men had a history with these people. A history that ran deep. And so what does our author encourage this church to do? Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Well, what was the outcome of their way of life? I mean, these men were dead. And most likely, they, they lived a life of suffering. I mean, after all, we, we know from chapter 10 in Hebrews that, that this church had undergone persecution from the beginning. And they had undergone persecution for quite some time. So is what our author wants for his reader a, a life filled with tragic events and then to die? But persecution and death doesn't tell the full story, does it? For these men were also fruitful in their ministry. They were leading people to Christ. They were being brave witnesses for their Savior. I mean, after all, they were the founders of this church. And many who were now reading this letter probably owed their own salvation to these men. And yes, they, they may now be dead, but, but are they really? For they died in Christ, and now their souls are with Jesus in heaven. So what was the outcome of their way of life? The expansion of God's kingdom, as well as eternal security in Christ their Lord. And that is why our author wants this church to imitate these men. For, for they chose to live for heavenly things, for, for eternal things rather than worldly things. And the fruit of their labors were the souls of men and women. You know, sometimes in order for, for us to move forward, it's best for us to, to look back. Am I right? Sometimes it's, it's the founders of a church that knew the best path to take. I know that New Hope Church is still very young, right? Uh, where were we founded? Like 13, 14 years ago? And I know that the founders of this church are not dead. I hope not. 
But, but consider for a moment some of the men and women who, who began this gathering. Consider how God used these people to form this congregation. I mean, what is it about their lives that is worthy of imitation? Could it be their willingness to obey Christ's voice when they decided to be a part of the Great Commission? Perhaps it's their ability to, to make sacrifices for God's kingdom. Or maybe it was their determination to remain true to God's word, even when it wasn't popular, even when it was a hard thing to do. You see, the typical direction that over time most churches take is a direction away from the gospel, away from, from the truth that is in God's word. As churches grow older and as generations pass away, people forget about their founders and about what was the original mission of their church. And instead, they, they start to follow these new teachings and they come up with new missions to follow. As if the church is some kind of ever-changing organism that simply morphs into what the culture demands. But that's not what the true church is. Because that's not who their Savior is. Look at verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen, right? Now, now we have spent a lot of time in this book speaking of how Jesus is better. And now we see here that this one who is better, he doesn't change. In other words, he is better all the time. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, there is a lot that we can unpack about this verse, such as the fact that, that number one, Jesus is God. For only God does not change. But, but the point that our author is communicating to this church when he says these words, that, that Jesus is unchangeable, that he, he is saying that this one who has authority over this church, he does not change and neither does his message. The gospel that was preached to you in the beginning by those faithful men is the same gospel that is preached to you today from this pulpit. At least I hope so. If it's not, call me to task. And it will be the same gospel that will be preached to you tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that until Christ returns. Just like Jesus Christ, this message does not change. And this is why our author gives his next warning. Look, it is a warning concerning false authorities. Look at, look at verse 9. It says this, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now you may be scratching your head like I'm doing right now. You may be asking yourself, what in the world does food have to do with diverse and strange teachings? Everything. 
What, what you need to remember is that this church who, to whom our author was writing was comprised of Jewish converts to the Christian faith. And most likely these people lived in a city that was far, far from Jerusalem. This meant that these Jews, the, the Jews within that city, they weren't able to practice many of the sacrificial and thanksgiving meals that would occur at the temple in Jerusalem. And so instead, what they did, they, they developed this practice of having these same meals only in their own homes. It, it was their way of trying to be temple faithful Jews without having to travel to Jerusalem. And this is where we see the compromise of those who have departed, of those who had left the Christian faith and gone back to Judaism. For it was at these meals that they sold their souls. You see, when, when they would observe these religious meals, it, it, was, it was a way of demonstrating their, their commitment to Judaism once again. But in so doing, they had rejected the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. For what these religious meals ultimately communicated was that they were once again relying on those temple, temple sacrifices. They were no longer strengthened by the grace of Christ, but by foods. And yet these foods offered no real benefit because they had no power to take away their sins. Nor could they produce a clean conscience. I mean, do you see it? Those who, who ran away from Christ and those who, who, who ran toward the, these meals, they were once again looking to that earthly tabernacle. They, they were looking to the blood of bulls and goats, and they were no longer looking to, the, to that heavenly tabernacle where the blood of Christ cleanses all things. They were once again looking to the to the law, the works of the law, when, when they chose these religious meals. And they chose them over God's grace that comes from the cross. This is exactly what we see in verse 10. This is, listen to what our author has to say. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What is this altar? The altar is the cross of Christ. It is an altar that is reserved only for those who look to Jesus and Jesus alone. For the, for the food that comes from this altar, it, it is not available to those who continue to practice uh, of relying on the blood of animals. Animals slaughtered in some earthly temple. And yet for those who partake of the food from the altar that is Jesus Christ, those who look to the cross with repentant faith, they will find themselves strengthened by grace, not by some earthly food that was sacrificed in some stone temple. Look at, look at verses 11 and 12. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now what is being described here is the practice that the Jewish priesthood chose to do throughout, throughout history, what God commanded them to do throughout Israel's history. We see this in the book of Leviticus. Look at Leviticus chapter 16, verse 27. It says this, And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. Well, what we see described here is that the, these carcasses of these sacrificial animals were, were taken outside the camp to be burned. The, this was done to make sure that the Israelites would remain clean, that the people of God would not be defiled. And then after the construction of the temple in Jerusalem, when the ark was brought into that holy city, these, these same sacrifices, these same carcasses were then carried outside the city gates and they were burned in, in this valley, what was known as Gehenna. This is why when you read the Gospels, when Jesus speaks of God's eternal judgment, he uses this valley of Gehenna as, as a graphic image, graphic imagery describing the fires of hell. For, for it was in Gehenna where things that were unclean were taken in order to be destroyed, in order to be burnt up. And yet what our author is reminding, reminding of us here is not so much a picture of hell. Rather, he is reminding us of when Jesus became that once-for-all sacrifice of the time when Christ was crucified. You, you see, Jesus, he, he did not shed his blood in that earthly temple. Rather, he went outside the city gates to Golgotha, to the place of the skull, to the place where the shameful go and those who are unclean. It was there where those nails were pounded into his flesh. It was on that dreadful hill that the blood of Christ slowly drained from his body as an atonement for sins of those who would believe. In other words, we are no longer to look to that fixed and earthly temple, to a, to a temple that shines with gold and conveys dignity and honor. Rather, we are to look outside the city walls where that which is unclean is destroyed and those who are found guilty go to die a shameful, shameful death. A death that was supposed to be our own death. And that's just it, is it not? Jesus became a reproach in order to make his people clean. Let me ask you, where are you looking to find salvation? Are, are you relying on, on some works-based system, hoping that your good deeds will carry the day? Or are you looking to Christ? 
Are you looking to the one who, who took upon your shame, who took upon your reproach as he died on that cross? Listen, if you are to find salvation, if you are to be considered a, a child of God, then you will only find those things by submitting to the gospel. The gospel of your crucified Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if that is who you are, if you have saving faith in Jesus, then our author now instructs you. He instructs you to follow your king outside that city. Look, look at verses 13 and 14. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. What our author is saying to us here is that, is that those who desire Jesus as their Savior will also have to bear the shame of their master in this life. Look, look at Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25. Listen to the, war, the, the words of our Lord. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Listen, if you have ever been told that becoming a Christian will make your life all sunshine and rainbows, then you have been given a false gospel. If the message you heard is that you can have your best life now, then that is a different Jesus that was preached to you. Dear friends, to follow Christ means a denial of self. It means a surrender of your own will, of your own authority. It means a submission to his will, to his authority. It means suffering because the, word, the world's going to hate you. It means persecution because you won't bend the knee to their gods. For Christ has now become your king. And as your king, you are now willing to lose your life for his sake. You are to be that good soldier. You, you, you no longer value your own well-being. Rather, you value Christ. And you'd rather lose your life than disobey him. And so you put Jesus first, even at the cost of your own safety. For you have chosen to submit to his authority. And yet to follow Christ also means finding life. Finding life eternal. I mean, what does our author say? For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This city that is to come is Zion, that unshakable mountain that we spoke of before. Therefore, let us go outside the city, that, that city that won't last, and let us identify with this one who is eternal, with the one who died for our sins with the one who was raised from the dead. Let us identify 
with Jesus. So how does that look? How do we as submissive followers go to our king who resides outside the camp? Look at verses 15 and 16. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Following Christ outside the city walls means having a life of worship. And the sacrifices that we bring, uh, is not, we don't bring the offering of bulls, we don't bring the offering, offerings of goats, rather we offer our voices as we praise his name. We acknowledge him. And we do so in our songs. We do so in our prayers. We do so in our readings. And we laud him in the public square as well as we proclaim the gospel to those who are lost. And more than that, we, we also demonstrate our devotion to him by looking out for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly in their times of need. And even though these good deeds might mean a hardship for us, we do it nonetheless, right? Because we have submitted ourselves to the authority of the gospel, to the authority of Jesus Christ, who is our king that rescued us. So what have we discovered so far? Well, for one, we are to submit to the authority of our founding fathers, we are to remember those who first spoke to us the word of God. And two, we are to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ, to, to, to the one who is the same today, or yesterday, today, and forever, to the one whose saving message doesn't change, to the one who took upon our shame and our reproach when he died outside the city gates. And now number three, what we'll see in verse 17, uh, we are also to submit to the authority of our current leaders, to those whom God has placed within his church to serve his church. Look at, look at what our author says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. <clears throat> One thing that we must understand as Christians is that Jesus has designed his church to function in a particular way. For, for one, he has given to us his Holy Spirit to be our helper. And one of the ways that this helper helps is that he has given to his people, gifts. And it is through the use of these gifts that the whole church is edified, that the kingdom of God grows. In other words, the, these gifts are supposed to be used in the service of God's people. But not only does the Holy Spirit give gifts, but he then sanctifies his people as well 
He, he is producing godly character in each and every one of you. Every person who comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. With that in mind, when we, when we look at the biblical qualifications for the role of an elder, for, for one who is supposed to lead God's church, what do we find? Look, look at 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, or you could put elder there, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that, they, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. When, when you look at all these qualifications, what do you see? All, almost all of them have to do with a man's character. Am I right? These overseers, these elders, they need to be godly men. The only qualification that even has an inkling to do with a man's gifting is this phrase, able to teach. And it's not necessarily that he's even gifted in that area, just that he is able to do it, right? In Paul's letter to Titus, we, we get these same qualifications. They're, they're just written slightly differently. And we get some clarification there, though, on what, what Paul means when he says able to teach. Look, look at Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Again, talking about elders, he says this. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Here's the thing. The, the role of an elder is the role of a servant, for that's what Christ desires in his church, servant leaders, right? Right? And the way an elder is to serve is mainly through his teaching, by instructing in sound doctrine and by rebuking those who contradict it. And so the ministry of these leaders of the church is that they lead by teaching the word of God. And so in our text today, when our author says to obey your leaders and to submit to them, assumed in this verse is that these leaders are already following God's will as they serve the church. That, that these men have the character that is necessary to fill this role. And that they are teaching what is in accord with sound doctrine. And so what our author is telling you is that when you obey, when you are to submit to their teaching, 
This involves a, a yielding to and a respecting of these leaders as they give instruction concerning right Christian doctrine. And so you don't obey them because of their title. You obey them because what they are teaching comes from right here. Does that make sense? But why? Why should you do this? What does our author say? For they are keeping watch over your souls. Now don't miss this point. One of the ways that God guards his people, that he protects his people, is through the leaders that he appoints. In the life of every Christian, I don't care who you are, there will come times when your faith will waver. And it could take the form of a depression that needs a message of hope. It could take the form of a sinful habit that needs rebuking. Whatever the case, God has placed these overseers, these elders in his church to make sure that you stay on that narrow path. That you aren't like the, those apostates, those who have turned their backs on Christ. God has appointed his elders to benefit you. And this is why our author then commands you, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. How do you bring your elders joy? By not only listening to their teaching, but by putting it into practice. But not just doing it, but doing it without causing them to groan, right? Think, think of a boy who, whose mother tells him to clean his room, right? Anybody ever been there? For some reason, it takes this boy four hours to do a task that should have taken him 20 minutes. And the only reason he finishes within that four hours is because his mother stayed on him like a hawk, right? She made sure that his room got clean. Sometimes as adults, we can be like that boy. Am I right? We eventually get there, but, but not without a lot of effort. Effort on the part of ourselves and effort on the part of our leaders. Leaders who have been painstakingly showing you from Scripture exactly what it is that you should be doing. And so ask yourselves, how does your submission or your, your non-submission affect the leadership of your church? How does it affect their ability to do their jobs? Is what you are doing making their life a joy, or is it bringing misery instead? Or ask yourself this, how does your submission or your non-submission affect your life? Has it been an advantage to you? If you do not obey, is that an advantage to you? And here's the thing. The, the advantage that you gain when you submit to your authorities is twofold. For, for one, you will, you will be following biblical advice that will help you stay on that narrow path. You will not stray from your master. And, and, and the king of glory will smile upon you. You will possess eternal security as you submit to the gospel. But the other thing that you will gain 
is that you will have a church leadership that is joyful, right? That smiles. <laughs> that is energetic and excited about serving you. You will have elders that, 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 that can go to you in your time of need because they won't be burned out. They won't be discouraged. And when you need their help, they will be there. Finally, consider this. Our, our author explains to us that these leaders will one day have to give an account. An, an account not just for their own lives, but also for the lives of those who have been placed under their care. Look, look at James chapter 3, verse 1. James gives us a warning. He, he says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. If you are interested in becoming a teacher in God's church, I ask you, consider your calling well. While it is a great privilege, it is not for the faint of heart. For you will have to give tough words, words that people don't want to hear. You will have to give counsel that, that sometimes just won't be listened to. And you will have to enact church discipline when people refuse to repent. But more than that, you will have to keep watch over the souls of others. You will have to give an account to God himself. And yet, if you stay faithful to God's word, and if, and if people learn to submit and to obey, then suddenly your work becomes a joy. For it is that, that, that sweet spot in the life of a church where God is moving and growing his kingdom. And that's what we all desire, is it not? A church that is unified and healthy, a church that is growing together, a church that is a, making an impact for God's kingdom, a church that is under the authority of Jesus Christ. So let us remember our leaders, those who first spoke to us the word of God. And let us go to him who is outside the camp. Let us go to Jesus Christ, our crucified Lord. Let us bear the reproach that he endured. And let us obey and submit to our current leadership, those who are keeping watch over our souls, those who will have to give an account. Let us do those things as we submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we come to you now as weak vessels. We confess to you that, that too often it's, it's difficult for us to submit to your authority. And so we need your help. We need the power of your Holy Spirit. We need him to give us obedient minds, to give us willing hearts. We need him to give us faith, faith in your gospel message so that we may submit to it. And so we ask 
for you to help us. Help us to leave, about, leave behind the, the comforts of this world and as we go out of the camp and bear the reproach that your son endured. May we not be ashamed of the gospel. For we truly are looking for that city, that city that is to come, to Mount Zion, where our shame will turn into glory. And we know that the only way to enter in to that heavenly city is by taking that narrow path who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we ask that you would give us the resolve that we need as we bend the knee and submit to your will. We pray this in Jesus' name.